Scripture reading tonight comes from Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or percussion or fame, nakedness or dangerous, danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. church good to see you all tonight um, our theme of being receptive people is going to continue so I hope that you've arrived and ready to be receptive of the Word of God and uh, hopefully we won't place ourselves above it and just inspect it or place ourselves to the side of it and see it pass by but actually place ourselves underneath of it and let it rule and guide and shape our lives you know, our theme on being really receptive as it continues tonight, the premise that I want to constantly remind you about, to constantly be putting in front of you as we think about um, the parts of this series that are coming together is this, that the posture, the stance, the position of the believer in Jesus Christ is constantly a position of reception. This whole thing is grace. This whole thing is gift. This whole thing that God has done for us through Jesus Christ is something that should produce within us a stirring humility and gratitude. And we should constantly be people that are receiving from Him, people with palms up, just gratefully receiving all the things that our gracious Heavenly Father has given to us. And so with that in mind, that our posture should constantly be um, receptive. Like, like each day we wake up ready to receive from God. As Jeremiah lamented about a new day coming, he said the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Meaning they have to be gathered like manna each day. You know, they had to gather manna every day, once a day, and they would have to go out and get it even though it was the same stuff and they couldn't store it up for the next day. I think there's something mightily spiritual in that message there. That the Lord's mercies are new every morning that you and I wake up to be receptive people. But the intent... The purpose of your posture being receptive is this. 
that you be transformed, that you be changed. New creation. Paul would say that's the thing that really matters. Galatians chapter 6, he says, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision, but it's a new creation being formed in you. That's what matters. Faith working through love. And so we're moving through that process as we talk about this on Sunday nights. We've talked about different things that God wants us to fully receive, but really the uh, under the idea of transformed or being changed people, there's three major areas that we're trying to work our way through. The first one we've, we've done in our teaching, that's being justified or justification. And Matt preached about receiving forgiveness. And then we talked about receiving reconciliation. And in that, when you understand the gospel truth behind those, that you can receive justification because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That empowers you to move to the next circle, which is adoption. That God did not intend to just pardon you and say, go on your way, don't worry about it. But in fact, He pardoned you so that you and He might be able to reconcile together and you might not just be a citizen of the kingdom, but a child of the king, a son, a daughter. And so we talked last week about receiving the Holy Spirit, which uh, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And tonight we're going to talk about receiving love, which empowers that adoption. And then the next and final one that we're going to talk about the next two weeks are sanctification. So justification, adoption, sanctification. And I'm convinced that we get stuck, kind of get log jammed in our spiritual growth because we get stuck in the cycle of justification, wondering if we are justified or not. And in that cycle, we never really move on into adoption and sanctification, really becoming the people that God wants us to be. And so we've got to settle into these truths to grow, to change, to transform. And again, as I said, if you're log jammed in your spiritual growth, most likely you're stuck somewhere in this process. You may know these truths, but until they become believed truths, you're just not going to grow. So God is seeking to move us into sanctification, meaning making us more and more set apart from the rest of this world to be useful for Him. He's moving us in that direction until our glorification. This is really the central expectation of a believer. Um, really, in Romans 5, verse 2, after he says that we've been justified, we, we have this hope. That's what the hope is of the believer, that we will one day shed this mortal body and be glorified. We can take this thing off and be glorified and no longer be burdened by our flesh and sin. John said it this way in 1 John 3. He said, Beloved, who, whoever has this hope in them, the return of Christ and to be made like Him, Whatever person really has the hope that they will be made like Christ is a person that is purifying themselves. Do you see how sanctification is the evidence that you have a hope to be glorified? And that hope is not a wishful thinking, but that hope is an expectation that it's going to take place. You see, I think this is where a lot of Christian preaching falls short Christian preaching gets full of moral teachings. It's full of urgings to its parishioners to give of yourself in service and evangelism. It's full of information to stay within the bounds of behavioral safety, to not have your soul eternally in jeopardy. But it really just gets boiled down to this 
sort of Christian do-betterism. You ever feel that way? Sometimes when, when we preach over and over, we listen to the Word of God, sometimes it just becomes this repetition of do better, do better, do more, do better. But this system of just Christian do-betterism without transformation, without change, promotes self-righteousness. Like, look how much I've done. I do better. I'm great. Or lying, pretending like I'm doing better, which is hypocrisy. That's all it produces. You see, the real concept of hypocrisy is doing on the outside what is not true on the inside. So if you sing the songs that we sing like, God, you are my all in all, and that is not an accurate reality of your heart, that's what the Bible would call hypocrisy. Doing on the outside what's not true on the inside. And so this boiled down version of Christianity, which is no more than just Aesop's fables, just, just do better, really all that is, that boils us down to self-righteousness, hypocrisy, or if you're honest, it just leaves you in defeat. Because you never do enough. And if you ever feel that way, Christianity, I'm not enough, not doing enough, not accomplishing enough, need to do more. But see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more than an upgraded version of the law of Moses. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's not just raising standards higher. It's bringing solution to what's broken inside of people. The gospel is the message of transformation. And that's really what this series is about, is that if you receive from God real forgiveness, that it produces in you a forgiving spirit. If you receive reconciliation from God, that although you were enemies with Him because of our own choice, that He still decided to make us right in relationship. If you receive that, it makes you a reconciling person. And if you receive the Holy Spirit, He confirms to you your salvation and leads you in this. And tonight is no different. I want to urge you to really consider how we receive love. Receive love. Love is the motivation, the mission, the message of Jesus Christ. His entire life was motivated, was founded upon, existed because of love. God is love. He came because of love. And called his disciples to do the very same motivation and mission. At the end of his life, that's what it was full of. When he was explaining to his apostles what was, this, what was about to roll out was this concept that all will know that you're my disciples if you love each other, if you care for each other. You see, when Jesus was asked about what is the most important or greatest commandment, all he could answer was, well, love God and love each other. That, that's the concept. Paul would later say that that's how the whole entire law would really be fulfilled, is that if you would just love your neighbor. It, the whole thing's fulfilled. And then he says it also, like I mentioned, it's the, the display of our discipleship. Love, this idea of agape love, it displays that we're really following this guy named Jesus. But he also would say it this way in, Rome, in Matthew chapter 5, that we're to not just love those that love us, but to even love our enemies. And that is not phileo love, which is like affection and brotherly kindness. The, the word that really is translated holy kiss, like, like, like you know, people you just connect with. This is willful choice to care about somebody. The ones that are difficult. 
Jesus Christ raised the bar to that level. And so he said this, the love that I have, the love that I'm calling you to, has no limitations and no exclusions. This kind of love is overwhelming. This high calling really seems impossible. I know um, uh, I'll share with you just something personal. For most of my life, I viewed my relationship with God, my, my Christianity, from the time that it became something that I valued and treasured, I viewed my relationship with God and my spiritual health through the lens of my love for God. You see, it started here and went vertical. So I was constantly evaluating how I was doing with God and how I was growing with looking at how much right now do I really care about and love God. And when that was going well, when that was high, I felt great. Spiritual health was good. Things were going fine. I felt safe going to bed. But when that began to wane, in times of seasons when it was dry, it began to tank and things didn't go so well for me. You see, I believe a person's love for God and for others are a great indicator of spiritual health, spiritual condition. But it is not the foundation that you build a sustainable Christian life on. Your love for God and for others is not the bedrock by which you build your Christian life on. It is a result of the building that you do on something else. But it still is a good thing. You see, in the midst of my wrestling with this about two years ago, I came across an interview with a man by the name of Stanley Hauerwas, and some of you may have heard of him, probably not. He's, um, he probably is one of the top five brilliant thinker theologians in the world today. Um, he's uh, an older guy that is a professor at the Duke Divinity School, and he's written, you know, like the books he writes are like textbooks, not like devotional at Barnes & Noble kind of books. He's just really, really a big thinker. Um, so he's an author, he, he's, he's um, a Christian, and he teaches at Duke Divinity School. And I came across an interview with him. It was just kind of a candid interview that was being played. And they asked him this question. They said, what is your strategy for love? Like, what do you do? What's your strategy for love? And, and, and I gravitated to this question because I, I feel that. I sink my teeth into that kind of question. Like, yes, I get that. I, I want to know how I can increase or raise the level of my love for God and for others because Jesus called that the greatest command. And so when they asked him, Stanley Quay, what is your strategy for love? His answer, I had never thought of before. He said, the hard thing is this. The willingness to be loved. He said Christians often think of themselves as lovers, givers of love, which can be a mask oftentimes for acquiring power and positional relationships where, where if I've given you so much love, then you kind of are indebted to me, and sometimes we can get a little bit uh, twisted in that. He said the real difficulty is learning to be loved. That's where it's difficult. This sent me on an exciting ride through Scripture in that very moment. Everywhere I turned in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, I was just pouring over Scriptures. This phrase, love of God, just started jumping off the page. The love of God became this powerful cosmic force 
that I had never really seen in the Bible until this time. I had spent so many years keeping the love of God on the back burner of my Christian life and my faith. I was aware of it. I knew the scriptures, uh, even the ones that we learned as a child and then the ones later. I had preached the sermons about how much God has loved us. I had thought about the crucifixion. I had thought about the grave and the resurrection often. I had contemplated that on, during communion. The love of God was something I had thought about. But it was on the back burner of my Christian faith, of my life with God. Like I said, I knew the verses, preached the sermons, told my friends even about it. But deep down, I was fixated on the limits of my love for God and His people. And then I came across 1 John 4, 7, where John, the apostle of love, has this to say. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, which is a highlight verse for me at that time in my life. And then he has this to say after the comma. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. It's from Him. And I learned in that moment that love only flows downstream. That when I am parched and dry in my affection and love for God and His people, it is because upstream I have clogged the drain. It is not flowing down to me. When he says we ought to love one another because for this very reason, love originates and flows from God. He is love. And so if I am starved and strangled out of my ability to really return love to God or to give love to others, and I just feel so dry in that place in my life, it's because I am lacking in receiving a love from God. My well is dry, and the only one who can fill that well is God, and I needed to receive love. And I could tell, honestly, after I started to really meditate and pray and, and study about this, I could tell in my life practically, practically, when I would begin to feel frustrated with people, or I would lack patience, or I would feel judgmental or critical of people and what they were doing, or I was feeling maybe frustrated with God and some lack of answers, it was always, I could trace that back to a deficit in the belief that I am loved by God. I was feeling insecure in that. I was feeling depraved in that. I was feeling, feeling choked out in that front. So when I was feeling insecure and unloved and not sure I'm worthy, what I had to do was be frustrated with other people because I needed a target for my frustrations. That's what happens in us. When we are not filled with God's love, we become frustrated. We lack patience and become judgmental and critical of other people. And so passages like Romans chapter 5, verse 5, if you're taking notes and, and you want to like have this sort of uh, list that you can kind of go to, here's some for you. Romans 5, 1 through 5 is a good one to start with. But Romans 5, 5 specifically really started to, to make sense and be powerful to me when he says that it's the Holy Spirit of God that pours out his love into my heart. Specifically, a work of the Holy Spirit is that he fills who I am and in me with the love of God. And so I began to ask God to do what he said he would do. Daily. And then scriptures like Ephesians chapter 3, 
when Paul spends a lot of time talking about really what the gospel is, that it's reconciling dead people to Christ, or to God through Christ, and reconciling dead relationships, Jew and Gentile, to each other, tearing down the hostility. And inside of that, he says, how are you going to do this? Well, it's for this reason, he says in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, that I pray that you would be strengthened by the Spirit of God in your inner man, that you would have the strength to comprehend how loved you are. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. The only thing that Paul could pray for when he's contemplating how I can take two, two groups of people that are so racially divided that there's hatred, how, how are we going to bring this together? How can I get these groups to love each other? The only thing I can pray is that they might have the strength to know they're loved. That's the only way. And so it began to make sense. I want to show you quickly what, the, what receiving love can fuel in your life. What, what, when you learn to receive God's love, what it just opens up and just empowers you to do. This is transformative. Number one, it empowers your ability to actually love God, not just know about God, not just recite information about God, not just say that you've heard of God, but to actually look at God and say, I have affection for Him. I care about Him. I love Him. I don't want to hurt Him. When we receive His love, it in turn produces a love for Him. John would say it this way, we love because He first loved us. And that's why I truly believe that John will always present God as light before he ever presents God as love. He says God is light, then he says God is love because in the reality of the gospel message that God knows all things, that He knows all the deep, dark evils of my heart, He knows that and still loves me should be a transformative message that says, gosh, you know everything that's ugly about me and you still showed up. I haven't met anybody else that does that. Boy, at least I would like to have that in our life, but there are times that we fall short. Not God. He knows every way that you've blasphemed and mocked Him and been ashamed of Him and not wanted to be around Him and wish you could just have life without Him because it would be easier. He knows it. And He says, I know all the ways that you've pushed me away and rejected me and I still showed up and loved you. And in light of that, that's what stirs within us a love for God. It also empowers us to really love other people. When you know how deeply you've been loved, when the reality of our sin carves a well so deep that only God can fill with His love, it empowers you to actually start caring and loving for other people and not criticizing and judging and, and wanting them away. John would say it this way in 1 John 3, when he says, He who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need, and he shuts up his heart against that person. You see somebody hurting and in need, and you just shut your heart up and say, I'm not helping. His question is, how can the love of God really be in that person? Because when the love of God is in that person, all you want to do is pour out that love to others. Lastly, this one really rang a bell for me. The love of God, when we really receive it, fuels 
our destruction of sin. John would tell us not to love the world or the things in the world. He says, don't love the lust of the flesh, which is not sexual. Lust of the flesh is the lust of my body and what it's able to do, of my mind and what I'm able to accomplish. So lust of the flesh is, I'm smarter than you. What I can do is better than you. And I lust for that because it makes me feel good that I'm better than you. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes, that's really more the sexual aspect of that. But lust of the eyes is, I'm seeing something that is there that I want. He says, don't lust for the eyes either. And the pride of life, which is life, is just the word bios, which is what you have, what you've accumulated, what you've done. Don't be so swelled in pride and say, look what I've done. He says, all of that, all of that, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, when all of us, as we fall into that, that is a result, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of God isn't in them. It starts to make sense, doesn't it? That when I see a bigger house or a different wife or a nicer business card with a better title or people that have nicer things or do better vacations or have other abilities that I don't have and I lust for those things, the reason the love of God is not in me in that moment is because I think having that thing would make me feel okay. I'll finally feel better about myself if I can have this or that. Pride of life is me saying, look, what I have is better than what you have. And if I could just feel for a moment better than you, have more pride, and I could feel superior to you, I'll finally solve what's empty inside of me. That's really what the pride of life is. And lust of the flesh is, oh, I'm so powerful. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. And I lust to do more things so that people will see me. Lust of the flesh, that, all of that is a result of not having the love of God in you that fulfills us, that makes us feel okay. So the one question I'll leave you with tonight is this. What makes it so difficult to receive love? Why is it hard? If receiving love transforms my relationship with God and others and transforms my desires from sin to spirit, what makes it so hard? Why? Bring it on, right? Open up the windows, open up the doors, just flood it in like the sunshine of today. Let's do it. There's a lot of examples that pop up in Scripture, things like fear, vulnerability. Like, like to be loved is also to place yourself in a position to be rejected, to, to put yourself out there. There's things like pride. I don't need your love. I'm fine without you. There's things like envy that just block love being received. And all of these are shields that we hide behind to protect us from really being in a vulnerable position to be loved. But to drill just a little bit deeper, to really give us a core answer, I want you to put together the pieces that we see come together really in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where Adam and Eve have really what all of fullness of life is about. They have purpose, they have meaning. They have relationship with God. They have autonomy. God has given them things to do, but he said, do it. Name the animals. He didn't tell them how. Tend the garden and keep it. He didn't tell them what instrument or tool to use. So, so man and woman have autonomy. They have purpose. They have skill. They, they feel fulfilled and they have a relationship with God. And Satan shows up and he makes a promise following a lie that God says you won't die. Then he promises that God is holding out on you and that you really will know good and evil. 
You know what's interesting about Satan's lie there or his promise? Is that it was true. He promised them that they would know good and evil, that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. And Satan told the truth. You see, here's a trick what Satan does to get us, to lure us into sin. Is he always presents us with what's true about the pleasure we're going to indulge in. Going to this certain place, you'll have a lot of people there that will think you're cool and it'll be great. And you know what? You will have fun. And I wish we could just be honest and say, you will. Your flesh will enjoy the indulgence of pleasures. It will. Our young people need to know that's true. You will physically. But here's the deal that shows up after sin that Satan never talks about. For the moment that they sin, on the back end of that sin, showed up an awareness of their nakedness. They were uncovered. And in the moment that they felt uncovered, they no longer could stand before God. They felt shame. And so Satan will always tell you the truth about what you're going to enjoy in sin, always. But he'll never tell you the shame that comes the next morning. So the way you defeat temptation and sin is to remind yourself of the shame that's coming in about 12 hours. And so in that shame, in that moment where they sinned, they knew they were naked, they believed they were not able to be in God's presence anymore. This is the ugly result of sin. The belief that God will not want you or love you anymore. That's the ugly result of your sin. And the bummer news the Bible tells us is that all of us have sinned. So all of us have this symptom that believes that God might not actually want us anymore. And we do one of two things like Adam and Eve did. We either we hide and we run from Him and we go seek indulgence elsewhere to find fullness of life, which just continues to be a cycle like a treadmill that never stops. Or do the other thing they did, which we start sowing fig leaves. We start trying to merit our ability to stand in front of God again. And the problem is those two don't work because love needs a beloved, so hiding won't work because God pursues. You can't hide. You'll always be pressed. And love cannot be earned because love is no longer love when merit is involved. Imagine for a moment if you only gave love to your spouse, your children, your friends when they earned it. And you only received love when you did enough to merit it. The moment merit enters the equation of love, it's no longer love. It's obligation. And this is exactly what happened in the story of the prodigal son. Both brothers were lying to themselves, believing the lie of Satan. One believed, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And as he walked home, the father ran and pursued him. And he said, I'm not hearing that garbage. And he told him the truth. That's what God does. That's what love does. Love is not like Hollywood. That's what love does. It love tells you the truth. And he says, put a ring on his finger and a robe around him. He's my son. And the older brother was telling himself a lie as well. He was saying, I've done all this work. I've done all this merit. And my father won't give me what I've merited. And the father shows up to him and says, hey, before you even started working, all that I had was yours. I often think we ought to call that uh, parable the prodigal father. Because he just lavishes things on his children. Lavishes on him. So the choice is, we all know we have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. 
And one of the results of that sin is the belief that we do not deserve to be loved and should not be loved. And that barrier, because of our sin, continues to stifle receiving the love of God. The only answer is this. Faith in the truth of the gospel. That yes, you are a sinful person and you have sinned and deserve to be cast. But God has still loved you. That's the choice. To believe the truth of the gospel and say, I believe. That's the good confession. I believe the gospel is to open yourself up to be loved by God, which will allow you to love Him, love others, and defeat this thing called sin. Certainly tonight, if that's a thing that you need to uh, um, make public, make aware to the members that are here, make aware to God so that you can begin to open yourself up to be receiving love, we want to help you do that. Let's uh, stand and sing this song.